The Bible says that a sacrifice has to be perfect. But was Jesus perfect? Does the Bible teach us that Jesus was perfect? We're going to talk about that today and more on BibleStudyPodcast.org starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Thursday, July 31st of 2008, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, and welcome to our study on the essentials in which we are discussing the doctrines that define Christianity. And these are the things that basically serve as the foundation for our faith. So welcome to everybody who's joining us for the first time and to all of you. Welcome. I want to start off by apologizing for not getting this up yesterday. Uh, actually, you know, we've we've had our house on the market for you know for almost three months now. We've been trying to sell it. Well, get this: last week when we were mowing, this little plastic piece underneath our lawnmower that was holding our axle, our front axle of our lawnmower, in place broke, and so our whole lawnmower. Uh, actually came to a standstill. And in the meantime, we've been getting all kinds of rain here lately, and uh, our yard was really, really looking bad. The The grass was really getting long. And uh, so anyway, yesterday we ended up having to buy a new lawnmower because to get this plastic piece was going to take weeks. And so we just went ahead and went out and bought a new lawnmower because, you know, honestly, with the real estate market as bad as it is right now, we just couldn't wait weeks for that piece to come in. So anyway, I spent yesterday uh, doing that, basically, mowing the yard that hadn't been mowed for uh, about a week and a half, maybe two weeks, which was way too long. But uh, anyway, so I'm sorry I didn't get this done yesterday, and I hope you guys can forgive me for that. But uh, man, I've I've just had a kind of a full plate lately. Also, you know, I've just been kind of up to my ears in books, as I like to say. Uh, I'm still working on the uh, the coursework for my summer school classes, so that's definitely been keeping me busy, and should keep me busy for about the next month, month and a half to come. I've definitely got some challenges ahead of me, but. I'm always up for a challenge. I don't know about you guys, but I'm always up for a challenge. But anyway, God bless you guys. I hope you guys are having a great week, and thank you for joining us today. Of course, if this is your first time joining, this is a study that we are basing on the book Conviction Without Compromise, which is written by Dr. Norman Geisler and Dr. Ron Rhodes. And this is a book which uh, deals with exactly this issue that we're dealing with, the doctrines that define Christianity. So we are going through these doctrines doctrine by doctrine, defining why we believe them and why they're essential to Christianity. But let's go ahead and start today with a quick word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your amazing love and your grace and your mercy that you show us day by day. Lord, I just pray that you will reveal yourself to us today through your word and uh, help us to know you better in order that we could grow closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, last week we covered the virgin birth of Christ, and we talked about why that's a doctrine that is essential to Christianity, even though believing in the virgin birth of Christ per se isn't really a requirement for salvation. If you'll remember, it's essential because it's a necessary part of the doctrine of the divine nature of Jesus, and that is a crucial issue for Christianity because it allowed for Jesus to not have a sin nature like we all have. And if you missed Monday's video podcast, or if for whatever reason you weren't able to to see it, I talked briefly about why it is that sin gets passed down from generation to generation. And this was the video podcast on Romans 5.12. You can see it on BibleStudyPodcast.org. You can download it on iTunes. You can find it on GodTube. You can find it on my MySpace. So if you weren't able to, to see it because you don't have a video iPod, you know, you've got a few options there. But basically, the point of that lesson was to say that just like Jesus had the perfect and sinless nature of his Father, it seems that we, too, inherit the nature of our fathers, our biological fathers. Our fathers have a sin nature because their father had a sin nature because their father had a sin nature, and you can trace it all the way back to Adam. And as a result, we have inherited that same sin nature. So our topic for this week, uh, in this lesson, really flows necessarily from Christ's virgin birth. This week we're going to be talking about why Christ's sinlessness is a doctrine that is essential for Christianity. So like the doctrine of the virgin birth, I don't believe that the scriptures teach that one needs to explicitly believe in the sinless nature of Christ in order to be saved. However, when we read of the the process and the requirements for an atoning sacrifice in the Old Testament, we read that, quote, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect, for his sin which he has committed. Of course, that's what we find in Leviticus chapter 4 verses 27 and 28. But with this in mind, since we know uh, what God's requirements are for an atoning sacrifice, we can deductively assert that Jesus had to have been perfectly sinless. If he was not sinless, if he had some type of sin or, or blemish, he couldn't have been a sacrifice on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, in this book, uh, Conviction Without Compromise, Dr. Geisler and Dr. Rhodes bring up an interesting study that was conducted by the Barna Research Group. Uh, this study was conducted nationwide on American adults in the year 1999, and it was repeated actually a couple times, and they came up with similar results. But the results found that 42%, 42% of American adults believe that Jesus sinned. Now, I suppose, you know, that number probably shouldn't surprise me, and normally I would probably think that that just meant that 42% of Americans uh, or American adults have never bothered to go to church. However, this study also found that slightly more than one-third, more than one-third of the people who profess to be born-again Christians believe that Jesus was a sinner. Wow! I mean, that really makes you wonder, what is being taught in our churches these days, doesn't it? Doesn't it kind of make you wonder that? But, you know, the study also found that 42% of the people who go to church believe that Jesus was a sinner. That's almost half the people in our pews on Sunday mornings. That means that if there are 10 people in your pew aisle or, you know, in, in the row that you're sitting in, that means that out of those 10, 
more than four are likely to believe that Jesus was a sinner. So you might think that uh, maybe those people just haven't read the Bible, but this same study found that about one-third of the people who have read the Bible believe that Jesus was a sinner. So the blame, therefore, can't be placed entirely on uh, on pastors or clergy who maybe aren't teaching their churches properly or whatever. Somehow, people are reading the Bible and coming to the conclusion that Jesus was a sinner. So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to ask, does the Bible present Jesus as being sinless? Well, yes, it does, and let's talk about the evidence for that first of all. First of all, even the enemies of Jesus recognized his sinlessness. For example, when Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate, Pilate tried to set Jesus free by offering the crowd the choice of freeing Jesus or freeing Barabbas, who is noted as having been a murderer and a notorious prisoner. Well, you know, if, if you look at this and you consider the context and what's being done here, Pilate's thought seems to have been that if he gave the people the choice of either freeing Jesus or freeing Barabbas, they would surely choose Jesus, right? No, instead, the people chose to free Barabbas and cried out for Jesus to be crucified. So then we read in Matthew chapter 27, verse 24, quote, When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, quote, I am innocent of this righteous man's blood. See to that yourselves. And by the way, some of you may know that the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, is my preferred translation of the Bible, but the translators for the NASB totally missed out on this verse. Instead of saying, this righteous man's blood, the NASB translation simply reads, this man's blood. Now, I know you guys think that I hate the King James Version, but I think they actually got it right here, because uh, the King James Version does refer to uh, this just man. And that's because the Greek word used here is uh, is used for a man who practices righteousness. It's not the, the word that we would typically use for man. It's a word that refers to a man who practices righteousness, which is a word that's completely distinct and totally different from the word for, you know, just an ordinary man. So actually, you know, in this verse, the KJV offers the better translation. I just wanted to point this out because this really shows the importance of reading more than just one translation when you're studying the Bible. Uh, but here we see that even Pilate recognized the righteousness of Jesus and referred to him as such. But uh, Pilate wasn't the only enemy of Jesus who recognized his righteousness. After Jesus had given up his spirit on the cross, one of the Roman centurions who was on the scene there on Calvary began praising God and said, certainly this man was innocent. That's what we find in Luke chapter 23, verse 47. And we also know that Judas, uh, after having betrayed Jesus, said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But, you know, even apart from the testimony of the enemies of Jesus, uh, the New Testament is filled with references to the sinless nature of Jesus. In the book of Hebrews alone, you can find it. Uh, But in in the book of Hebrews, we find multiple references to his sinlessness. For example, in chapter 1, verse 9, we read that Jesus, quote, loved righteousness and hated wickedness. In chapter 4, verse 15, we read, quote, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And then in chapter 7, verse 26, we read that, quote, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So clearly the book of Hebrews has several references to the sinlessness of Christ. Uh, and who would know better than uh, than Jesus' closest disciples whether or not Jesus had sinned? In Peter's writings, he tells his readers, quote, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's what we find in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. And Peter also quoted the book of Isaiah in his uh, in his writings when he wrote that Jesus quote committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And that's from 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 22 and he's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 there. But Peter was definitely one of uh, Jesus's closest disciples and Peter here is proclaiming the fact that Jesus had no sin. And of course, John was another one of the three disciples with whom Jesus was the closest. And John, like Peter, also affirms that Jesus was sinless. In the Gospel of John, we read John the Baptist referring to the requirements from the Mosaic Law when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's in uh, the Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 29. And of course, for the Lamb to take away the sin, the Lamb had to be perfect. The lamb had to be unblemished. And then later on in the Gospel of John, we read John telling us about how Jesus challenged his enemies, saying, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? That was from John chapter 8, verse 46. He also says that Jesus always did what was pleasing to God the Father. That was in uh, John chapter 8, verse 29. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John refers to Jesus as, quote, the righteous one. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, we read that everyone who has hope in Jesus, quote, purifies himself just as he, that is Jesus, is pure. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, we read that Jesus came, quote, so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So clearly, John, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, also asserted that Jesus had no sin. Of course, we would also expect that Paul would have something to say about the sinlessness of Christ, since Paul wrote more than half of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul refers to Jesus as our Passover lamb. And of course, he knew that according to Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, the Passover lamb had to be without spot or blemish. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul tells us that Jesus had no sin. So everybody in the New Testament is telling us that Jesus had no sin. Whether it's his enemies or whether it's his closest disciples or whether it was a person who hated Jesus and came to serve and be one of the greatest advocates of Christianity, uh, and that would be Paul, of course. All of them were proclaiming that Jesus had no sin. And of course, logically speaking, we also know that if Jesus was God and God is immutable, that that is, uh, he doesn't change, that's what immutable means, he doesn't change, and is also without sin, we know that God is without sin, then of course, Jesus could not have logically sinned. This issue is really a no-brainer. Jesus couldn't sin because he was God incarnate. And we know that he didn't sin because everyone from his closest friends to his fiercest enemies knew that he was pure and innocent. So despite the the clear-cut evidence, it comes as no surprise that various groups have denied 
the sinlessness of Christ. Several New Age advocates, for example, and and Hindus as well, uh, who don't think that Jesus was anything more than an enlightened teacher, have taught that the Bible records Jesus committing sin by becoming angry when he drove the money changers out of the temple. However, uh, newsflash here, everybody. (laughs) Anger is not necessarily a sin. Uh, God has an unchanging righteous anger towards sin, and he demonstrates his anger, and that's what we find in Exodus chapter 4 verse 14. We find that in the book of Numbers chapter 12 verse 9. We find that in Psalm chapter 2 verse 5. We find it all over the place that God has an anger against sin. So the question really is whether or not Jesus's anger was righteous. Well, to answer that, let's consider why Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. Now, as the center of Judaism, people came to Jerusalem from all over the place, all over the region, to offer up sacrifices. Now, these people had two options when they did that. Either they could bring their own animals, or they could purchase an animal from a vendor in the temple. However, when people brought their own animals, they were being told that the animal was somehow blemished or unfit, and that made the animal uh, unqualified for sacrifice and forced the foreigners or the travelers to purchase an animal for sacrifice at the temple. So the problem was that when they would uh, when they would do that, they would be charged unfair prices for those animals. But that wasn't the only problem. Because these travelers weren't from Jerusalem, they had to exchange their own currency into the local currency in Jerusalem. So people were actually being charged outrageous amounts of money in the temple in order to make these currency conversions. So the temple had been completely defiled by the greed of the money changers at the temple. And as a result of this greed, some people, you know, I'm sure, weren't able to afford to make a sacrifice at the temple, even after having come from these great distances to do so. And so for that reason, Jesus was angry, and his anger and his driving the money changers out of the temple was a righteous anger with a just cause. Therefore, this wasn't sinful at all, but it resulted from Christ's righteousness. Uh, Some have also claimed that when Jesus sent demonic spirits into, you know, approximately 2,000 pigs, he was sinning because, well, not only was he killing those pigs, but he also caused financial damage to the farmers who were raising the pigs. But, you know, let's look at the context of all this in uh, in light of the culture. You know, first of all, uh, pigs aren't moral creatures. Uh, Only people are moral creatures. So there's nothing inherently sinful about sending the demonic spirits into the pigs. But in response to the charge that Jesus caused financial damage to the farmers, this is where we have to look uh, at the the cultural context. We have to look at the purpose of the pigs. Uh, In that particular pagan culture, pigs, believe it or not, pigs were deified. Uh, compare that view with the view of the of the Jews that pigs are unclean. But the fact is that uh, that the people viewed these pigs as their gods. They idolized the pigs. So when Jesus sent the demonic spirits into the pigs, he was not only destroying their idols, and he was not only performing a miracle to prove that he was God, but he was also demonstrating that as God, he was superior to these pigs that he had created. He was superior to the idols that these people had. So the greatest good, obviously, would have been that the people would have recognized what Jesus was saying, that they would have recognized that Jesus was superior to their idols. And as a result, they would have worshipped 
him instead of the pigs, which, by the way, is exactly what happened when Jesus returns to that area at a later date. So therefore, Jesus did not sin in any way by casting these uh, these demons into the pigs. So this is just uh, a couple examples of, of some places where critics or skeptics, you know, look at what Jesus did, and they misinterpret it to be a sinful action. But these were clearly not sinful actions. So aside from those skeptics, various heretical word of faith teachers are also worth mentioning here. Kenneth Copeland, for example, teaches that Jesus actually became sin, like literally became sin, and therefore took on the nature of of Satan. According to Kenneth Copeland, Jesus, quote, put himself into the hands of Satan when he went to that cross and took that same nature that Adam did, end quote. And of course, right here, what he's referring to is the sin nature that Adam took when he sinned. But Copeland continues, teaching that, quote, the day that Jesus was crucified, God's life, that eternal energy that was his from birth, moved out of him, and he accepted the very nature of death itself, end quote. So this this energy that was in Jesus was what was God, but Jesus himself was not God. That's, that's what Copeland's teaching here, but he clarifies what he means when he adds that Jesus, quote, had to give up his righteousness, end quote, and that he, quote, accepted the sin nature of Satan, end quote. Wow. Well, you know, they, they really just don't get more heretical than that, friends. That is just preposterous and outrageous. Uh, This is due mainly to a misinterpretation of 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says that God, quote, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. However, does this verse say that Jesus sinned or literally took on a sin nature or that he lost his uh, his God nature? Not at all. Did the animals who were sacrificed under the Levitical law um, for sacrifice become sinful in their nature? Uh, you know, of course not. Instead, sin was imputed to those animals that were being sacrificed. It was imputed to them. That is, the animal was just uh, used as a substitute for us or for the sinner who was uh, who was sacrificing the animal. The fact that Jesus was our perfect sacrifice, likewise, does not mean that the nature of Jesus changed, just like the nature of those animals didn't change. It just means that our sin was imputed to him. It means that, judicially speaking, Jesus paid the penalty of sin on our behalf, and by doing so, was able to cancel out the debt of sin that we have with God. So, you know, in closing, anyone who denies the sinlessness of Jesus also denies the ability of Jesus to serve as a sufficient sacrifice on our behalf. And that's one reason that the sinlessness of Christ is an essential doctrine to Christianity. But a second reason is that Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus was without sin. I mean, it's in black and white. And thus, the only way to conclude that Jesus sinned is either to allegorize, to overlook, or to overrule, by somebody's own discretion, the textual evidence for Jesus's sinlessness. So therefore, this is a doctrine that we as Christians must not compromise on, but we must hold as one of the essentials of our faith. Well, thank you guys for listening. I hope this clears it up and that you see how black and white this issue is and how important this issue is. But 
Anyway, if you guys have any questions, as always, you can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. And if you haven't already added me on Facebook or MySpace with that address, cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com, you can go ahead and do that. And for those of you who have already added me, you knew that the lesson wasn't coming yesterday. You knew it was coming today. So anyway, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, just a quick word. Uh, Justin won't be putting up his podcast tomorrow. So uh, I'm going to try and do a Q&A on Saturday. If I can't, uh, we'll just do extra. You know, we'll make it up at some point this coming month. But God bless you guys. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This lesson has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org, a paraministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a nonprofit listener-supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org and click on support on the right-hand side. You can make a tax-deductible donation from there. By doing so, you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who, just like yourself, desire to find answers and meaning in Scripture. We thank you for listening today, and we pray that the Lord blesses you and draws you closer to Him. Keep growing closer to Jesus.